0: Hey y'all, it's Becky here from the Becca Sphere, where we talk about climate news. If you want to stay up to date on this very important topic, then I highly recommend you hitting the subscribe button so you don't miss every single time I post. And if you don't miss every single time I post, hi, how's it going? I appreciate you so much. And yeah, thanks for being here. Let's go ahead and get into some climate news, starting with some updates on the stories that I talked about in the last climate recap. Remember when I said the UN projects that the hole over the Arctic will close in 2045, the hole over the Antarctic, which was the worst impacted space, will close by 2066, and any other hole in the layer will likely close by 2040. So that's amazing but not entirely guaranteed if we continue to play with the atmosphere. For example, geoengineering advocates are proposing injecting sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere to cool the planet, but this could have a detrimental impact on the ozone layer. So we gotta be careful with what we're doing here. Well, Mexico just announced that it would create legislation to ban solar geoengineering research after an American startup went rogue and released balloons of sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere above Baja, California. Making Sunsets did their little experiment without any accompanying monitoring or recovery process or permission from the Mexican government. Excuse me? The company was selling a $10 cooling credit, which pays for one gram of sulfur dioxide released. And the company's site says that one gram offsets one ton of CO2. CO2 a year. This geoengineering method is called stratospheric aerosol injection and can potentially cool the planet because these little particles reflect more of the sun's rays back into space. But like I said in the last video, it could also weaken the ozone layer and rapidly change the climate for certain regions. For example, it could increase winter rainfall in northern Europe and drop rainfall in southern Europe. Deputy Program Director at the Center for International Environmental Law also pointed out that by offering a cheap and easy quick fix to the climate crisis, the company plays into the hands of the fossil fuel industry. So uh, add that to the list of cons for this. Thankfully, the amount released in the unauthorized experiment wasn't enough to make a big impact, according to an atmospheric science professor at Exeter University. He called this balloon release a glorified PR stunt. It worked so well that Mexico doesn't want it to happen again, so well done. The next update from the last recap actually updates two stories I've talked about over the last few months. The first is the coal mine expansion protest in Germany, the one where hundreds of activists held up in a cleared out city for years to protest it. That project has actually swallowed up 13 cities according to Friends of the Earth Germany, despite Germany pledging to quit using coal by 2030. While the coal mining protest in Germany is no more, the plot thickens about the project. According to the bureau of investigative journalists the company rwe was given a quiet 340 million dollar loan from hsbc the same bank that said that it would withdraw financing from clients that are expanding the production of thermal coal just three months prior they also said that they would phase out funding for coal-fired power and thermal coal mining so they really did a good job keeping their promise there interesting also because I recently reported an announcement that they would no longer finance new oil and gas projects or related to infrastructure. So I'm really curious to see if they will keep their promise. According to the investigative bureau, several HSBC bankers didn't support the mine expansion, but greenlit the loan anyways. What's worse is that this loan is just the tip of the iceberg. The bureau, which is an independent nonprofit organization, looked into the billions that HSBC has raised for sustainable finance and found that $2.4 billion of it was going to projects that would actually worsen the global climate, like an oil pipeline project in East Africa or a woodland clearing project for a cement company in India. Both projects received SLBs or sustainably linked bonds, which are supposed to lock companies into carbon reduction targets, or see their interest rates on the bonds go up. The problem is HSBC would only increase the interest rate by less than 1% if these companies missed their targets. Also, these targets are like far off enough that it wouldn't really prevent any environmental damage the projects that their funding would cause. So, For example, the Woodland Clearing Project in India is led by Ultratech, a cement company that last year emitted as much CO2 as Greece. It's known for breaching air pollution regulations and causing environmental damage and has been protested a lot you know, great candidate for a $400 million SLB. In exchange for the bonds, the company has to reduce its emissions by 22% by 2030. But because the assessment date is just six months before the debt is due to be repaid, the total sum would be just $3 million that they would owe, or 0.05% of the company's revenue last year. Not even a slap on the wrist. It's like a little flick. Now, why would a company even go through the whole process of getting an SLB versus a loan. And it's mainly because these ones are easier to get the chief executive of the nonprofit climate bonds initiative told the Bureau that quote treasurers will try anything that reduces their cost of capital, adding that the SLB market is deeply compromised and bank targets for sustainable finance are flaky as hell. Now HSBC isn't the only bank to do SLBs and also wasn't the only bank to help fund the mine coal expansion. Barclays, Santander's and 23 other banks provided $5.4 billion in loans to the controversial project. The third update from the last recap involves the Environmental Protection Agency's new definition of waters of the U.S. or WOTUS. Yeah, about that. Texas Attorney General Paxson has already filed a challenge against the new definition, which simplified what is considered under federal jurisdiction back to what it was during the Bush Jr. presidency. This move will likely render the pro-property rights Supreme Court case Sackett v. EPA toothless, maybe. So this is what the Texas AG said about challenging the new definition. Quote, legal action is necessary to curtail this administration's continued intrusion into the rights of Texans and our ability to control our own natural resources. I'm proud to file this lawsuit challenging Biden's WOTUS rule and remain committed to pushing back against the Biden administration's radical climate agenda. Lovely. I'm sure there was no connection to the fossil fuel industry in that decision. Oh, wait. This move came just hours after Texas oil and gas regulators urged Paxton, in particular, to challenge the new definition. And Paxton is the same guy leading the charge against banks that want to regulate their environmental, social, and governance, or ESG portfolios, or halt fossil fuel financing, and also doesn't like it if the federal government does it. He and other Republican AGs also tried to sue the Biden administration to stop it from using the social cost of carbon to provide a more accurate cost of polluting activities. That effort failed, by the way, but the ESG war has so far been quite successful. And again, the waters of the U.S. is super important when it comes to which organizations or companies or individuals are able to pollute certain waterways versus them being allowed to remain clean for drinking or ecological purposes. And the fourth and final update from the last recap involves the US gas stove controversy. Firstly, the energy department recently proposed energy consumption limits for home appliances that could spell some death sentences for some products. It targets both stoves and ovens, but the department says that it would likely only impact half of the gas stoves available on the market. Naturally, Big Gas is pissed. And the vice president with the Association of Home Appliance Manufacturers even said that it appears that 95% of the gas stove market would not be able to meet the standards. That's a bit of a discrepancy between what the government said. (laughs) Also, the gas industry is acting like it's at a front specifically on gas, but actually certain electric appliances would not be able to survive in that scenario either. So overall, this proposal would reduce energy usage of these appliances by about 30%, according to the Environmental Group American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy. And the Energy Department says that it could save about $1.7 billion in reduced energy costs if it was mandated by Congress. And that's the part that makes me wonder if I should even bother covering this. Would Congress in its current form go for something like this? It seems less likely by the minute. The Washington Post recently reported that gas lobbies are targeting former Democrat officials to favor gas appliances and sway the liberal vote. Former Senator of Louisiana, Mary Landry, I'm guessing that's how you pronounce it recently touted the benefits of gas in a Bloomberg News interview on behalf of a pro gas astroturf group that pretends to be a nonprofit run by concerned citizens, quote, Yes, this country needs to move forward on wind and solar, but we need to back it up with a fuel that we can count on, a power source, and that's natural gas. It's abundant, it's cheap, and it can be cleaner. She failed to mention that the group that she's representing, Natural Allies for a Clean Energy Future, very deceptive name, by the way, was created by six gas companies in 2020 in response to gas bans primarily being in Democrat-run areas. One of the companies is TCS, Energy, which is behind the Keystone XL project that was protested into the ground. Another is Southern Company, which is one of the U.S.'s largest utility companies. And also another is the gas pipeline firm Enbridge. So yeah, you know, just some concerned citizens, real concerned. And so some other non-office Democrats that are currently mouthpieces for the gas industry include Heidi Hetkamp of South Dakota and Tim Ryan of Ohio. On the Republican side of things, Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, recently proposed a tax exempt for gas stoves to encourage adoption in the state. One problem with that, DeSantis. Florida actually has the lowest gas stove adoption rate in the country, with only 5 to 8% of households in that state using gas stoves. Couldn't be a more clear culture war move than that. I mean, maybe some will switch away from electric for the sake of political theater, but with induction stoves being cheaper, cleaner, and faster to heat up than gas, I kind of doubt it. Fun fact, gas stove usage is the highest in Utah, Illinois, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Colorado, with all of those having 68 to 80% of households using gas. It seems like which states have more gas is completely irrelevant to politics. This is sponsored by me. Update for actually the patrons. Uh, If you haven't checked out the latest post on Patreon, please do. I put out a survey for when we can video chat, but it will be this coming weekend. And if you're not a patron yet, you could join the conversation, but you gotta be a patron real quick. So click the link below and for as little as $3 a month, you can help me support the work I do. Yeah. Wow. Okay. We finally got through the updates (laughs) and that was a lot of mixed, but mostly bad things. So let's see if we can have some good news now, right? Maybe this will do it. Worldwide clean energy factory investments spiked by 31% between 2021 and 2022, totaling at least $1.1 trillion, according to Bloomberg NEF. Much of this spike comes in the form of battery factories, and China easily outpaced any other country in these investments. It provided nearly half of the worldwide investments. The U.S. was in second, but far behind. This brings the world a bit closer to the $4.55 it needs to invest in annually from 2023 to 2030 to keep up with its decarbonization goals. But finally, the clean energy movement is getting the same amount of annual investments as fossil fuels. Woo! <laughs> A bit more on the US side of it, we're actually supposed to see renewables reach a quarter of our electricity supply in 2024, according to the Energy Information Administration's short term outlook analysis. Nuclear's percentage isn't expected to change, but rather coal and gas are the two losing ground. Gas will still be the largest source of electricity production at 37 percent. For renewable growth, one third will be due to wind energy production and two thirds will be due to solar. Recently, the U.S. actually made some progress on the development of its domestic battery manufacturing with the Department of Energy announcing its first loan for a lithium processing plant. The plant will be located in southwest Nevada to accompany a lithium mining facility. This mine actually divided environmentalists and climate activists because it hurt the habitat of an endangered flower. But if built, the plant and mine could supply enough lithium to build almost 400,000 electric vehicles a year. The DOE estimates, that lithium demand will surpass global production this year unless countries step it up. In other mineral news, Sweden recently discovered a huge rare earth deposit which could change the game for Europe's domestic manufacturing. Rare earth minerals are made up of 17 elements and are used in a huge variety of products and infrastructure pieces. Like lithium, they're often talked about in the context of the clean energy transition which will significantly increase the demand for these minerals. Though investing in alternatives that don't require rare earth minerals is also becoming more popular in order to reduce environmental impact. Demand for rare earth minerals is expected to increase by fivefold by 2030. And some say rare earth minerals and lithium will be the oil and gas of the future in terms of economic and energy importance and environmental concern. Currently, there are no rare earth mines in Europe, so the continent is almost fully reliant on China to source their clean energy transition. But the Swedish deposit is estimated to contain over 1 million tons of rare earth minerals, so maybe something will change. Now, that being said, these minerals won't hit the market until like another 10 to 15 years because it takes time to build the mining facilities and even more so go through the environmental assessment process, according to the mining company LKAB. I think it will be interesting to see what the demand for rare earths will look like by the time the mine is ready to provide minerals, assuming that it's given the green light. If Europe, wants to reduce Chinese dependency on rare earths faster, then they might actually work on engineering alternatives without these minerals faster. So maybe the demand won't be as big as people think it is now, but I don't know. What do you think? In my state, California, there's this company in San Francisco Bay Area called Peninsula Clean Energy that recently announced that it would provide 24-7 carbon-free energy by 2025 to customers in San Mateo and Los Banos counties. That's a harder Goal to achieve than increasing your percentage of clean energy because wind and solar are inconsistent that just means that they need to have an energy storage mechanism attached or there needs to be another low carbon source like hydropower or geothermal or nuclear to the grid to pick up that slack many corporations like google and microsoft in cities like los angeles and des moines iowa have committed to achieving 24 7 clean energy but Peninsula Clean Energy might be the first company to actually pull it off, or at least get 99% of the way there. Right now, their customers are guaranteed their electricity comes from only clean energy at least 70% of the time. But once they offer this 99% option, customers can opt in with only a 2% price increase. And for context, their 70 percent plan overall produces less than half of the amount of CO2 in its operations as a California utility company average. So that's pretty cool. The California Public Utilities Commission also recently approved seven solar and storage projects that will produce more than 800 megawatts of clean energy by mid 2024. That's pretty fast. Three of these projects will be conducted by San Diego Gas and Electric and four by Southern California Edison. But I am honestly a little conflicted because all of these... Actors are the same that just recently redid California's net metering rule like a few months ago. Net metering determines how much money rooftop solar owners can make from selling excess energy to the grid. The update made rooftop solar take much longer to pay itself off, which will have a detrimental impact on the residential solar community. So certainly we seem to be heading towards a utility dominated clean energy power route in California. So that was a good news story that I semi-ruined, but you're welcome. (laughs) Oh, and by the way, if you do live in California, the new net metering rule policy goes into effect in April. And actually, if you get the paperwork in for your solar project before then, you can still get those better rates, even if your panels don't get installed until later. Just saying, little tip. Harris County, which includes the most populous city in Texas, Houston, just released its 24-page climate action plan last month. That's a big deal because the state actually doesn't have one. This plan includes reducing climate pollution from government operations by 40% by 2030 through electrifying 50 to 75% of the county's passenger vehicle fleet, cutting the county's landfill waste in half and installing up to 20 megawatts of solar power and 10 megawatt hours of battery storage by 2025. The plan also includes working with community partners to address environmental health disparities associated with local climate impacts, like extra heat-related stress cases, for example. The Harris County Director of Sustainability told commissioners, quote, acting now benefits the local economy, ensures that county operations are efficient and managed responsibly, and prepare the county for future climate impacts. Well done, Houston. That's awesome. If you live in Houston, let me know what you think about the new plan. Meanwhile, India recently announced that it will annually invite 8 gigawatts of wind power projects from now until 2030. Overall, the world's seventh historically largest emitter plans to boost its renewable energy generation by 500 gigawatts by 2030. Right now, it has about 120 gigawatts of renewable energy on the grid. It also just pledged $4.3 billion on clean energy projects, including green fuel, green energy, green farming, green mobility, green buildings, and green equipment according to the finance minister. Whew, that's a lot of green. Importantly, this includes helping people transition from more polluting industries and constructing transmission lines to adapt the grid to cleaner energy sources. It also includes investing in energy storage systems like grid batteries and pumped storage. Sounds great. Though a major caveat is that these projects will be overseen by the oil ministry and will also include funding methane gas production. (sighs) As a reminder, fracked gas was originally seen as less harmful to the global climate compared to coal and oil, but more recent research over the last decade has shown that the amount of methane released during the production, transportation, and usage of this fossil fuel might make gas almost as bad as coal in some circumstances. Methane is 84 times better at trapping in heat than CO2 for the first 20 years there in the atmosphere. Despite this new understanding, many countries still see fracked gas as a legitimate transition fuel on the way to building a cleaner electricity sector. And India is one of those countries. Half of the US is also one of those countries. That being said, investment in renewables are growing fast in India with $14.5 billion invested in renewables last year, producing 15.5 gigawatts of clean energy. Most of that money actually came from the private sector. So this public sector push that we are just hearing about now is encouraging. But is it enough to keep India on track of meeting its goals of getting half of its electricity from renewables by 2030 and reaching net zero emissions by 2070? Well, no. India actually missed its target of having 175 gigawatts of renewable energy on the grid by the end of 2022, and the International Energy Agency estimates that the country will need to invest $160 billion a year through 2030 to reach its decarbonization goals. India is hoping foreign private investment will help it reach its goals, but analysts worry corruption in India's energy giant, Adani group, might be scaring foreign investors away. And that was your climate recap for the day. If you want more climate news, check out the source list below for more stories that I didn't have time to cover. And if you like the work I do, please follow this podcast, give it a five-star rating and leave a review and consider checking out the Becca's Fear Climate Corner YouTube channel. Remember to talk about the climate crisis every single day and to support your local news organizations. Bye for now.